What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. It's just about official. The S&P is about to book its worst half performance in over a century. Will it be a different story in the back half? It has to be, right? We'll look at the dynamics that'll drive the second half for stocks with June about to draw to a close. Plus, the great crypto unwind is what Steve Weiss was just referencing. One of my guests says it reminds him of the 2008 housing crisis. He joins us to explain why and what he sees happening next. And forget the safe haven sectors. We look at why it could be time to start playing offense and the names to include in your portfolio. But first, let's get the latest on stocks. Dow's in the green. It's the only one. Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Yeah, it's sort of uh, two steps forward last week and two steps back this week, Kelly. Uh, There's not a lot of trading pattern here. There's not a lot of momentum, and it's causing a lot of confusion with the trading community. Let's take a look at the major uh, averages. S&P 500's been in a very narrow range today, uh, about 3,800 to maybe 3,840 or so. That's narrow range. Uh, Dow's up just fractionally here. Uh, Honeywell's at a new low, though, I see. Uh, consumer staples like Procter are good. Healthcare uh, like United Health are helping out. Uh, all the defensive names are doing well. NASDAQ is having some problems because semiconductors are a bit weak today. In fact, we have a bunch of semiconductors that are at new 52-week lows, Advanced Micro, NVIDIA, which is the big kahuna in the space, NXP semiconductors, all 52-week lows. Uh, oil reversed in the middle of the morning. It was, we were 113 or so. We went down to 111. And so all the big oil names, including uh, Exxon, which has been very choppy the last week and a half, all these oil companies have been choppy, uh, moved to the downside, down, down about uh, 3%. Uh, new lows uh, expanding a little bit today. We've got two down days, and you get a bunch of these new lows. Carnival's just having a horrible day. Uh, they got a very negative report uh, from Morgan Stanley saying the price target to $7, saying the cruise line stock could lose all of its value if recession triggers another demand shock. Rather uh, aggressive uh, uh, downgrade there. Honeywell, 52-week low I mentioned there. Martin Marietta, uh, also uh, 52-week low. Uh, cost issues, a big concern amongst the earnings reporters today. So McCormick, has some, uh, McCormick came out, cut their full-year outlook. Uh, they seeing higher costs and supply chain issues. Uh, very solid report from General Mills. That's a 52-week high for General Mills, I believe, right there. And they had uh, double-digit inflation they were talking about, so that's still an issue. And best, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, excuse me, just a disaster today. Steep inflation, fluctuations in purchasing patterns. Kelly, there's all sorts of discussions about this, and I think you're going to hear a lot about these cost concerns when we really get into the heart of earnings season in about two weeks. Kelly? And we'll have more coming up. Bob, thank you very much. Now, with just one full trading day left in the second quarter, it's time to look ahead to the back half of the year. My next guest says sees three areas of opportunity for investors. For more, let's bring in Sarah Malik. She's Nuveen's CIO and Global Investment Committee head. Sarah, it's good to see you. I mean, again, statistically, let's just think it's got to be impossible to repeat the terrible first half performance we just had. But where do we go from here? Thanks. We, we doubt history repeats itself, but there's three things we're focused on for the second half. That's inflation. When will it peak? 
earnings? Are they the next shoe to drop? And of course, valuations where we're at historical levels. For inflation, we're seeing some cracks in demand destruction from Richmond Fed, consumer confidence, Michigan surveys. That will be that's good news for inflation, but the timing of when it will moderate is unclear. Now, earnings, I think, are the real risk for the second half. Uh, we don't think second quarter earnings will show cracks in terms of the reports, but the outlooks are going to be murky and estimates really haven't come down. And that's going to be the issue for the rest of the year. It's the E in the PE that's at risk and valuations at historical averages are supportive for the market. But until inflation shows signs of breaking and we can see the Fed take their foot off the gas for interest rate hikes, um, I don't think you're going to have a much upside beyond 4,200 on the S&P. Well, I, I think the earnings piece of this is, is really interesting. Art Hogan yesterday was saying he he thinks estimates or, or, or earnings will go higher, actually, which kind of bucks the usual trend. But there are plenty of people who at least think they won't fall much further from here. So what makes you more bearish? Well, first quarter, we did see across the board beats on earnings. And the, for the Prince for Q2, we think earnings will still beat to a more moderate degree. It's third quarter and fourth, fourth quarter where we're worried. It's going to be the companies that have pricing power to overcome their already peak margins and, and cost pressures. Those are the companies that can do well, but you need to be selective because I think the estimate, the positive revisions going forward after second quarter are going to be much tougher to come by. Do you, and so it's funny because these two very issues came up with uh, with Art yesterday. So we talked about earnings and whether they're going to be revised higher or lower on the market multiple, which of course then, you know, is based off of that 16 times forward multiple. Does that seem reasonable to you or what are you guys anticipating? It's about average in terms of historical valuations. This probably depends on you know, whether we hit a recession, how deep it will be in a recessionary environment. I think market multiples go lower. Also, our outlook is more of a moderate to soft recession going forward. So I think that historical valuations aren't terrible. But again, where is the is the E accurate? And I think earnings are, are the risk here. Uh, that'll be the next shoe to drop while valuations have already moved down about five or six points year to date. Yeah, and I want to mention a couple of the names in particular you like here, but a final point to go back to your first one on inflation. It was interesting. I mean, look at the 10-year today. We're back to 310. And a lot of this seems to be coming from the surprisingly negative CPI print we got out of Europe. That was on a monthly basis, but to see it drop at all was kind of a, a welcome sign. At the same time, you still have this upward push on energy prices. So where do you kind of look for the inflation story um, in the next couple of months and, and the implications for the Fed? Well, energy prices, we expect them to remain high because of the tight supply demand dynamics. Looking at inflation, uh, you know, we are starting to see cracks in that narrative because of the demand destruction, the pessimism of the consumer. I think that does eventually lead to inflation leveling off. The question is, when will we consistently see it for long enough so that the Fed can uh, stop talking about such aggressive rate hikes. And they're, they're going to need to see more data than one or two data points going forward. Uh, you will see what the U.S. CPI number looks like uh, when we get that the next time. But we don't expect to see consistent moderate reductions in inflation prints uh, for a while now. Yeah, I'm looking through here. You guys, you know, we, we talk about stocks, obviously, but you also have plays that you like in credit. Um, you know, you like some of the high yield munis here. Real assets, farmland, that's going <laughs> to catch a lot of people's attention. <laughs> I have to say this is one of the conversations the past year or two with everything going on with inflation and COVID and apocalypse now and all the rest of it. Um, I'm just curious if you want to kind of recommend anything for individual investors on the real asset front that we wouldn't normally talk about? 
the themes that we're talking about are where are you really getting paid to take the risk? You can't just take any risk now and hope to get rewarded. So where really are we getting the best risk reward? This is publics over privates because publics have really priced in a lot of the real-time issues. Credit over equity. Some of the yields on high yield and also municipal bonds are actually looking quite attractive at this point. And then real assets are a great inflation hedge. So think about farmland. This is We know there's higher food prices. This leads to higher crop prices, higher land values for farmland. They have built-in escalators for inflation and consistent cash flow. So those are uh, alternative areas where we're finding value. A lot of work, though. I mean, people think it's hard enough being a landlord. Go ahead. Be, try to try to hire someone to run a farm. Uh, let us know how that goes. No, <laughs> it, it is absolutely a huge discussion point. Quickly, on your stock picks, I see Valero. I see Salesforce. Is that right? A couple of things that jump out to you here. Salesforce has been a tough one, but everything's been tough. The balance of growth and value here, we're not in one camp versus the other. Growth stocks tend to perform well during periods of slowing economic growth, which is what we expect. But you need to be selective. We're not talking about unprofitable tech or conceptual companies here. These are solid companies like Salesforce, force the push to digital and also cloud computing. And also then on the value side, we like energy, tight supply. Demand still isn't at back at 2019 level. And Valero is a refiner. They tend to benefit as more barrels come out of the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, we think Russia's supply continues to decrease. And also um, the SPR reserve should expire in October. All that's positive for energy. 96% capacity utilization for refiners right now. I mean, it is shockingly high, uh, astronomically high uh, in a name in that space. Sarah, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sarah Malik joining me. Meantime, NATO leaders are in Spain for one of the most consequential meetings in the alliance's 73-year history. Investors are watching closely for any headlines about how long the war in Ukraine could continue. It's already having a major impact on global defense spending. Look at the stocks like Northrop, Lockheed, and Raytheon significantly outperforming the market this year. Not only green, Northrop's up almost 20%. Kayla Tausche is in Madrid with the latest out of the NATO summit. Kayla? Kelly, allied countries are bolstering their defenses against Russia, which they have now officially declared as the most significant threat to the transatlantic. NATO is multiplying its rapid reaction forces. The U.S. is going to be adding to the 100,000 troops it already has stationed in the region. Part of that increase will be seen in Poland with the first permanent forces on NATO's eastern flank. U.S. is also sending F-35s to the United Kingdom and guided missile destroyers to Spain. Turkey's president has said he would press President Biden. They met just a few moments ago to advance a deal for new fighter jets. A senior U.S. official denied the planes were a quid pro quo for Turkey supporting Sweden and Finland joining the alliance. Even so, earlier today, a Pentagon official gave clear indications the U.S. was on board, telling reporters the sale would be governed by the normal contracting process. But the United States supports Turkey's modernization of its fighter fleet because that is a contribution to NATO security and American security. Today, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was asked whether Ukraine could join NATO. Just like Sweden and Finland, he said the alliance would offer other types of support, but for the long haul. But I think also it's very clear that allies are prepared for long haul. Uh, it, war, war, wars are unpredictable, uh, but we have to be prepared for the long haul. Stoltenberg is giving another press conference as we speak, but he has suggested uh, and been very consistent in NATO saying that Ukraine must negotiate the end of the war itself. Kelly? And when should we expect Finland and Sweden to actually join? And what is Russia's response likely to be? 
Well, Russia has said that the expansion of NATO is destabilizing. The Kremlin has said that it is actually the defensive alliance that poses the most significant threat to the region. So hitting back at this expansion, uh, when could we see it happen? Experts say possibly this fall. Uh, member countries are discussing it uh, very vehemently. Uh, this week here in Madrid, pretty much everyone's on board now that Turkey's concerns are allayed, although all 30 member countries' legislatures have to approve it. And that's going to take some time. Yeah, Kelly. for sure. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche in Madrid with the very latest. Still ahead, Bitcoin remains around the 20,000 mark, down 70% from its all-time high back in November. With Celsius treading water and FTX having to provide lifelines to other players, is the whole ecosystem crumbling before our eyes? Plus, consumer staples are typically more defensive in times of market volatility, but our money pro says it's time to ditch defense and go on offense. His new strategy and stock picks coming up. As we go to break, here's a quick check on the markets. Dow up 52 points, S&P down 8, NASDAQ down 32. The Russell down 1.5% today. The 10-year yield back to 311. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin's dramatic drop is being felt in every corner of the crypto ecosystem, with the yield play Celsius now facing a liquidity crisis. Kate Rooney has the details and what it means for customers. Kate? Hi, Kelly. We spoke to half a dozen Celsius customers that are locked out of their accounts right now. Some invested their entire savings and their retirement money. They first heard their accounts would be frozen through a blog post back on June 12th. Celsius blamed extreme market conditions. They later said the process would take some time. No comment from the company since. Most of the people that invest into crypto are similar to me. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a job that pays them hundreds of thousands. And, you know, it's, it's money that was really hard earned. And, and because we want to get to that point where we have a, a more financial stable life, you know, we're sometimes willing to take more risk, but it's not worth it. Investors like Alex, you just heard from, flocked to Celsius for 18% yield in return for depositing their crypto. The fine print, though, Celsius is not a bank. Customer deposits are not insured, and that money was lent out to hedge funds and put into some other high-yield crypto projects. A structure began to unravel as crypto prices collapsed. CEO Alex Mashinsky was also a reason investors we spoke to say that they trusted the company. He gave weekly YouTube talks. You'd often see him in a T-shirt that said, Banks are not your friends. Legal experts tell me the likely outcome here is bankruptcy. As unsecured creditors, investors will be collecting pennies on the dollar. Five state regulators we spoke to are investigating Celsius at this point. The only federal regulator mentioned on their website in the fine print 
is Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. It's the anti-money laundering group which declined to comment. No mention of the SEC by the company. We also reached out to Celsius, its CEO and law firm. No response. Kelly, back but to you. basically, Kate, those whose funds are gated on the platform, experts think they're not likely to get anything back if they're lucky, maybe pennies on the dollar? If they're lucky, and they said it could take years, there's really wow. no trigger at this point for a bankruptcy. They could drag this out for years. We saw the, the last analogy in crypto was Mt. Gox, where that, that was the situation. People either didn't get their funds back. It was years later. And in this case, because it is a situation with lending, they could be unsecured creditors. And in that case, they may be at the back of the line. All right, Kate, thank you very much for that reporting, Kate Rooney. Now, all that deleveraging is continuing to suppress crypto prices with Bitcoin and Ether hovering near their psychologically important levels of 20,000 and 1,000 respectively. But my next guest says this moment feels to him like the 2008 deleveraging in the housing sector, except who will swoop in now to save the day? Let's bring in Mike Buccella. He's the general partner at Block Tower Capital. Mike, it's good to see you again. Absolutely feels like a rerun. So where do we go from here? Yeah, it's good to see you as well. So so this we're experiencing basically a, a, a dual based deleveraging event. So we're experiencing both a macro deleveraging as central banks tighten monetary policy. And we're experiencing a micro deleveraging event within crypto, which I, I believe in, and as you mentioned, very much represents what happened in the housing bubble leading into 2008, where credit standards deteriorated significantly, leverage increased at an unsustainable rate. And it was really a result of this strive for yield. So you had, as in the mortgage crisis, you had mortgage banks that couldn't compete on rates. So they went down the risk stack to lower quality borrowers. And here we had a similar situation where you had these large scale platforms, you mentioned Celsius, BlockFi, et cetera, um, where they needed to sustain user growth, to sustain valuation levels in the market that they were providing in their, in their uh, capital raising rounds. And to do that, they had to offer attractive rates to then generate net interest margins, which are referred to as NIMS, which is what they're able to generate on their deposits versus what they pay out. They had to go further and further out the risk curve right. into things that really were not meant for this type of uh, yield environment. So I think very much analogizes well to what happened in the, in the housing crisis. Um, and, and we're experiencing that, you know, across the board, both macro and micro. Within yeah, crypto. I mean, even the stablecoin thing is a rerun of what happened with the money market funds back in 2008. So we know how that story ended with uh, taxpayer funded bailouts, uh, some financial firms swooping in to buy others that we saw lots of that happening. We're starting to see a rerun now. Do you think FTX sort of assumes because of its deep pockets that JP Morgan like role? What happens to firms like yours? What happens to Celsius? What happens to all the rest of it? And it doesn't seem like there's any bailout coming for the people who got hosed here well okay these so us and others are risk managers we we, we understand and acknowledge these risks we we manage our portfolios according to that and so from a private investment standpoint you know private investment firm hedge funds you know we manage around this kind of stuff but for these platforms that are kind of grow at all costs that's where you experience some of these issues and really a lot of it was the off-chain traditional lending that happened in our space that is probably the most worrisome currently and is still being unwound as, as we speak um yeah the bailouts are going to come this is a distressed scenario this happens in traditional markets it's you know when you have cash in your balance sheet in these environments there's a lot of very attractive opportunities and in these instances, you know, you had, you know, obviously FTX came and there's a lot of news around who they may bail out or may not bail out, what those structures look like. Because when you go beneath the surface, it may look very good for depositors, but not very good for equity holders of these companies. So I think what you're what you're seeing now is sort of a, a, a kind of broad based assessment of markets and kind of figuring out where the bodies lie and right. trying to assess underlying risk in the markets. But I think as generally. 
Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if you, if you are sort of the sophisticated player in the room and all of this is happening around you, how do you take advantage of a situation so that you can buy something, you know, now? I mean, Citigroup is an interesting analogy. You know, it was trading at rock bottom levels back during the financial crisis, but it's not a whole lot above those levels 15 years later today. So where does Block Tower see the opportunity? So the opportunity is across the board. There is really interesting parts of the market happening in market neutral strategies where you're seeing spreads blow out. You're seeing the, new, the advent of new investment technologies where you can take traditional credit, bringing on, bring it on chain. But really, it's distress scenarios. And, and these need to be underwritten at a very, very conservative level. So the world was moving too quickly. Deals were getting done too quickly. Capital is being deployed too quickly. And that culminates in something like we're seeing today. I think it brings it back to being able to have the time to underwrite an investment, the time to structure it well. And if you're in a position, you know, with a strong balance sheet, you can you can take advantage of these opportunities. I mean, there's no I've talked to and this is both crypto native, but also traditional asset managers. I mean, name the largest credit funds, the largest asset managers in the world. I've spoken with most of their special situations heads. They're all looking at this market. They're all trying to figure out exactly where yeah. they can deploy their balance sheet, where they can take their traditional structuring and apply it to our space. And we're working alongside them to figure that out as well. We, we want our industry to come out of this stronger. We think it will. This is an 18 market cycle all over again from a peak to trough scenario, actually not as bad as 18. Yeah. The only difference is we don't have an accommodative Fed and a macro environment that is uh, a bit more strong than it was back then. Well, and as you say, the Goldman Digital Asset Conference uh, last week, you were there, standing room only crowd. And if crypto kind of makes it through the other side of this and is able to say, hey, we never, you know, we figured it out on our own. We didn't need, you know, Hank Paulson and everyone else to, to come into the rescue here, but you're going to have a lot of burned uh, individual investors. So I guess my final question is this, for the, the people at home who are going, I don't know, people tell me to bet on ETH now for the long run, or okay, Bitcoin should still do okay. I mean, as specifically as possible, where are the places that you think are the safe havens or the really cheap buys here? Yes. Yeah, so we we will, for the foreseeable future, always be forced to figure it out on our own because regulators are are growing their education base. So we'll be there for a while. Uh, yeah, Goldman's conference was an incredible turnout, which I was surprised to see and happy to see my alma mater doing those types of events. Specific as possible, there, there are still very interesting parts of the market that are being developed. And unfortunately, the gift and the curse of a liquid market in an early stage uh, asset class it's just that there's air gaps when there's no liquidity. So you can air gap lower, air gap higher. But in these environments with liquidity coming out of the system, it's going to be lower. So the world of gaming, decentralized finance is still an enormous, enormous TAM. Bringing private credit on chain is enormous TAM, TAM being addressable market. Mm -hmm. But you should not. This, this is something that I constantly say. You should not confuse size of market with maturity of market. And we or are profitability, still as we've seen with the collapse of tech stocks over the past year. Exactly. And the reality is, you know, most of the things happening in crypto and really public equity markets, as you mentioned, are still primarily technological and financial experiments happening in real time. And so I think when it comes down to how to approach the space today, Listen, crypto is not going to break out of a range without the macro environment being a bit more accommodating, without traditional risk assets leveling off. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that we're going to, you know, jet higher from here with if the rest of the market tapers. But I would say use your mac, use a broader macro backdrop as your kind of guesstimate entry point for for crypto. Um, and in the interim, there's interesting trades to be had. And in this environment of full distress, yeah. professional money managers have a really good environment to go out and find interesting opportunities. All right, Mike, comprehensive. Uh, I think we did it. Thank you so much for all your thoughts today. It's good to have you.
Good to have you. Thank Mike Buccella now with Block Tower. Coming up, the semiconductor ETF, the SMH, on pace for its worst first half since its inception. 80% of these names have hit 52-week lows in the past two weeks. But could the space benefit from deflation in the second half of the year? We will explain that. Plus, today marks 15 years since the launch of the first iPhone. How Tim Cook took Apple to the next level, and can the company ever do it again? And we want to show you the closely watched five-year break-evens. The yields uh, sinking sharply today, about 8 to 10 basis points. What you're seeing here, about 2.65% expected annual inflation, one of the lowest levels we've actually seen this year. So in a positive sign, investors are less concerned about persistent inflation now than they were a few months back. The exchange continues after this. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow has given up a 200-point gain today. It's down 24 points right now. Similar for the S&P, the Nasdaq is down half a percent. And energy, best yesterday, worst sector today. Oil is near session lows right now. APA, Devon, and Valero, the refinery we were just speaking about, are some of the worst names in the XLE ETF. Look at Valero, down almost 6%. The airlines are also falling as travel stocks keep getting slammed. American, United, Delta, Southwest, Alaska, all on pace for their worst month since the pandemic. Pandemic hit, American dropping another five bucks today. It's below $13 a share. And now Senator Bernie Sanders is calling on the Transportation Department to not only demand refunds for passengers whose flights are delayed, but also to find the airlines for excessively delayed flights and for scheduling flights they are unable to staff. We will have much more on this breaking story next hour on Power Lunch. Meantime, let's get to Contessa Brewer for a CNBC News update. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. Hello, everybody. The Supreme Court says Justice Stephen Breyer will officially step down at noon Eastern tomorrow, soon after the last decisions of this current term are handed down. Kataji Brown-Jackson has already been confirmed by the Senate. She will be sworn in to take his place. New York City's Democratic mayor, Eric Adams, wants prosecutors to investigate Rudy Giuliani and whether the former mayor filed a false police report when he claimed this week he was assaulted by a worker in a Staten Island supermarket. Giuliani said publicly the slap on his back felt like he was being shot with a gun. Adam says the video shot by a store camera shows, quote, the guy basically walked by and patted him on the back. 6,000 casino workers are threatening to walk off the job in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Friday, just before the kickoff of July 4th weekend. The deadline for a new contract with five casinos has expired, although negotiations continue on the union's demand for higher wages. The union estimates that a strike will cost these casinos a million dollars or more per day. No response yet from the casino companies. Kelly? I'm keeping an eye on that one. I bet you are. Wow. All right, Contessa, thank you very much, Contessa Brewer. 
Still ahead, my next guest says the time to play it safe is over. A look at the sectors and the names he likes right now, including this stock down more than 30% this year. The name and why it's time to play offense. That's next. Welcome back. Consumer staples have been a bright spot as investors look for safety amid inflation. It's the second best performing sector, down only 5% in what's been a pretty bad second quarter. Some of the biggest gainers are Monster Beverage up 15%, Kellogg and General Mills up 11%, Campbell Soup up 9%. But my next guest says the time to play defense is over and now offense is the name of the game. For more, let's welcome in David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, it's good to see you. What's making you feel so bullish here? Well, you've just gone through one of the worst first halves in decades, and we think a lot of the negatives have been discounted. We expect to see some relief in the second half. We do think inflation is going to be breaking by the September, October timeframe. Valuations are reasonable, and there are a lot of really good stocks. So the key to investing is to invest for what is likely going to happen rather than what has happened. So we would not be playing defense now. We've had a lot of the consumer staples. We've done well with them. Mm -hmm. uh, we're sellers of those, and we, we're redeploying that money into things that have done really poorly because the stuff that's done poorly, a lot of it's going to come back pretty nicely. Yeah, I, I don't feel like when we've talked in the past that cyclicals have been um, you know, a big favorite of yours. I feel like it's been more kind of bigger, um, more boring names, you know, for lack of a better You're term. Right. Yeah. What, what did your portfolio look like for the front half of the year, and what, what made you position that way? So we're a bottom-up manager, but we were finding opportunities in, in the consumer staples, and we've been selling them as the year has progressed. So we took Pepsi off the table earlier in the year. We sold some General Mills in the last few months. We sold some Kellogg recently, and we're redeploying that money into things that have really been beaten up. So I, th I think we'd mentioned the last time, like uh, Air Products and Starbucks. Uh, technology has been pretty beaten down, so we, we think there's some pretty good places to put money there. Uh, Meta, we think, is going to be a good place to be. Cisco, very good place to be. Um, and, and, you know, there's some select healthcare that has done poorly. The drug stocks have done well, and we've scaled back on a few of those. But companies like a Medtronic or a Zimmer have done poorly. Uh, we think their prospects are good, and they're a very low valuation. So the key is valuation prospects over the next six to 12 months for the business. And if you can get both of those favorably, we think that's a really good place to be. We would not chase the first half winners. Yeah. You know, you sound pretty comfortable talking about how you've been selling out of a name like General Mills, which is up 5% after earnings today and almost doubling its year-to-date gain. Why, why should people who are taking that as a sign that staples will keep working, why do you think they are misinterpreting that? Well, you, you don't want to look at what has happened. You know, the reason that we like Staples is we thought that they would do well um, during a difficult environment. We thought that they would be able to navigate or they had been navigating the inflation well. They were raising prices. They were uh, the first to get hit with logistics and inflation problems about six months before everybody else. So they've been doing much better with that. But the stocks have done very well. So normally uh, they'll sell it. It's a uh, 14 to 20 times earnings. So they're at the higher end of their valuations right now. So we think they're going to continue to be fine. But if consumer staples can go up another 5 to 10% in the next 12 months, and some of these other areas are going to be up 20 to 30%, we think you have a lot more upside. And we think what's going to happen is if the market continues to go down, and we're wrong, and then the market continues to go down for the next, you know, a uh, year or so, the consumer staples, which have held up well, are going to be the next leg to be hit. Yeah. Uh, we had the same thesis on the um, utilities about three, four months ago. They had done great, but in this most recent sell-off, 
they gave back a lot of their gains this year. So it's not a question. You don't want to just look at something that has traditionally been a safe area. If the valuations are full, uh, you want to take your profits in. So I'm glad you explained that because we're at a juncture where it seems that half of the investing world, maybe we'll break it down into thirds, a third think we're late cycle and the next step is recession, in which case you're right, Staples would succumb with everything else. The middle space probably is sticking with what's been working and hoping that they don't have to try too hard and it'll just stay that way. And then the the final third is the third, the camp that you're more in, which thinks this will give way to a more cyclical rally. What would drive that? In other words, even for those who are watching this from the macro point of view, what would allow us to kind of restart the cycle and avoid a recession? So part of our outlook is we are looking at the next six to 12 months. So what would uh, allow us to do that? We think that inflation is starting to uh, show signs that it's going to break. Commodity prices in many areas are coming down significantly. There's less labor inflation. Real estate is gonna slow. The excess inventories that Walmart and Target have is going to cause discounting in a lot of apparel. That's the first time you're going to see discounting in two years. So as inflation breaks, we think it's going to allow the Fed to be a little bit less hawkish in 2023. And right now, the market's pricing in a recession. We think we hopefully can avoid that recession. And if we can avoid that recession, businesses do well, less hawkish Fed. You're going to have the next leg of the economy. It's not going to be robust growth, but it should be reasonable growth. You're getting some really good companies uh, at 12, 14 times earnings. And that's a really good place to be. And you mentioned them. Tech plays. Starbucks is in there. Uh, some medical, some healthcare names as well. David, great to have you on. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Have David a Katz day. with Matrix. Still ahead, shares of LVMH falling about 19 percent this year. But despite rising inflation and those recession concerns, their demand remains strong, according to the company. We'll hear from the CEO and get a check on the surprising pockets of luxury strength next. Welcome back. The old world is moving into the new. LVMH's Moet Hennessy is buying a California winery, the first big U.S. vineyard it's ever purchased. Robert Frank spoke with the CEO of Moet and joins us now with the details and a check on strong demand we're still seeing in the high end, Robert. Indeed, Kelly. Moet Hennessy just announcing a deal to buy Joseph Phelps. Terms were not disclosed. Phelps, of course, is the legendary name in Napa and Sonoma Valleys. They make about 750,000 bottles a year. They're famous for that Insignia brand. That retails for over $300 a bottle. I just spoke with Moet Hennessy's chairman and CEO, Philippe Shows. They have about 25 brands, including Dom Perignon, Belvedere, Cloudy Bay. He said sales in Europe are especially strong. That's surprising given all that's going on in Europe right now. European demand, he said, is on fire. The same for Japan. In the U.S., They are seeing a slight slowdown in the lower price products, but the medium and high end remains very strong. They reported revenue growth of about 8% in the first quarter. They did have some supply chain issues then. He said those issues are largely resolved. They do expect a, quote, very strong second quarter. So that's going to be good news for LVMH shareholders. But the champagne shortage is likely to drag on. Dom Perignon, for instance, That age is 10 years before they actually sell it, so they can't just make more of it. He said the demand imbalance will continue at least for a year, so lots of upset customers there. The champagne that they co-own with Jay-Z, that's Armand de Brignac, that is, quote, exceeding our expectations and is catching on in the south of France or Japan. So, Kelly, shaping up to be a great second quarter for both Moet Hennessy 
and Jay-Z. That was an education in like 60 seconds, Robert. I, I, I mean, there's so much to unpack there, so much great information. Let me ask you this very kind of top-level question, and, and maybe the company's answered it before, but it's not every day we find a high-end alcohol business in the same group as we find a high-end luxury purveyor of clothing and handbags and all the rest of it. I mean, what's the future for LVMH and how important you know, is the relative, you know, what having all of these businesses, which they do have a huge portfolio, um, does it make sense for them to be this big conglomerate? So Moet Hennessy is one of the smaller of the six groups, but it's really important from a profit margin perspective and also from a geographic perspective. So you look at the stock, as you mentioned at the top, it's down this year largely because of China. As a company, LVMH is very dependent on China. But the Moet Hennessy business is really strong in the Europe and U.S. U.S. accounts for about 40 percent of Moet Hennessy's business. So it's kind of this great geographic stabilizer hmm. for LVMH, especially, I think, in the second quarter. So all it's it, you're right. It's a sprawling company. They play in so many different fields from fashion to spirits to jewelry. They just bought Tiffany. But it works uh, both from a geographic and product portfolio perspective. And I think we're going to see that in the second quarter. Yeah. And I guess they would say from jewelry to accessories to spirits, they know their high end customer. Um, they know that customer globally. That's right. Robert, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Robert Frank bringing us that interview. Coming up, happy 15th birthday, iPhone. We'll get a look at how it evolved from a relatively small part of Apple's business to its anchor product, one of the biggest products in history, and what the future holds for the company and for the stock. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Apple have climbed more than 900% since Tim Cook took the helm nearly 11 years ago. And on the 15th anniversary of the iPhone, happy quinceañera, as we're saying, we're looking at how, the, uh, how he turned the once relatively small product into the capstone it is today. Steve Kovac is here to discuss this evolution. Yeah, Steve. feeling a little old today, 15 years. Uh, here we are 15 years later, Kelly, and Apple's future is still tied to the iPhone. Now, it all started sale with the sale of the first device on this day back in 2007, but it was Tim Cook taking over in 2011 when the iPhone business became a juggernaut. Now, Apple's iPhone sales for the fiscal 2021 year, $192 billion. That's how big the business was last year alone. More than half of all of Apple's revenue tied to the iPhone. So let's talk about how did Apple get here? When Cook took over, he supercharged that iPhone business, first bringing it to more carriers in the U.S. like Verizon and T-Mobile, and then spreading it across the world, especially in China, giving the iPhone hundreds of millions of more customers. But then around 2015, they started pinning more digital businesses, those services businesses, to the iPhone. And this would be the next phase of hypergrowth. The thesis around the iPhone leveraged the iPhone install base, now at about a billion people, to squeeze more sales out of each user. And boy, did it ever work, accounting for $68 billion of sales in 2021. And that strategy worked on accessories for the iPhone as well. They linked the iPhone to hot products like the AirPods and the Apple Watch right to the iPhone. And iPhone sales are still growing, not necessarily because Apple's selling more units, but because Apple made them more expensive. It started back in 2017. Top models now start at 1000 bucks. And look, again, the story of the last 15 years, all tied back to the iPhone. Everything Apple does, whether it's adding digital driver's licenses to your iPhone or letting you delete iMessages, it's all to keep you locked in that ecosystem and upgrading. So what's next for Apple and the iPhone? 
Uh, there's this rumored iPhone hardware service, this is so-called Apple Prime, launching early this fall that's expected to juice sales even more, Kelly. Oh, interesting. I mean, this might be unfair, but I appreciate that you're citing Tim Cook and many of his decisions and strategies as the reason for the success yeah. of the iPhone. I still think of it as once Jobs created the product, the right. rest is history. Almost as if there wasn't anything further to do, but the story's more complicated than that. Yeah, it's way more complicated that, of course, Jobs was the creative force behind the iPhone. And that's uh, what I said here is nothing to diminish his role in making this product. But unfortunately, he passed away and Cook took over and just really turned it into a juggernaut. And, you know, Apple itself didn't expect the iPhone to turn into this phenomenon that it did, especially a year after they launched it and put it out the App Store. And, and boy, did it just go off from there. And what's the hardware thing you mentioned that's coming? The up? hardware service. So there's reports out that this fall they're going to start... I call it Apple Prime, like yeah. Amazon Prime. But basically the idea would be you pay an annual or monthly fee and not only do you get a bundle of all the services, you get a new iPhone every year too. So wow, every of, year. Correct, yeah. So instead of upgrading every three to five years like many people are doing now, Apple can rope you in and sweeten the pot with Apple TV Plus shows and tempting. things like that, just like Amazon does with Prime. All yeah. right. Well, that's a glimpse at what could be next. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Our Kelly. Steve Kovac. Now, Apple shares have soared under Cook, but it's obviously been a different story this year for Apple. Uh, shares are down more than 21% amid supply chain pressures, the post-pandemic environment, inflation, and all the rest. And my next guest, while bullish, says it, while its products are sticky, Apple is not immune to a broader drop in consumer spending. Joining me now is Harsh Kumar, Managing Director at Piper Sandler. Harsh, it's good to see you. So, I mean, you know, obviously they're going to go where kind of the macro landscape goes, but um, for how much longer can the company's valuation grow on the success of the iPhone, or do they need another breakthrough product? So, Kelly, thank you for having me on your show. So if you think about Apple and you think about the areas that are growing, I'm going to throw out a couple of end markets that are working uh, and, and are poised for a tremendous amount of growth. So let's talk about this cloud, personal electronics, healthcare, fintech and payments, electric cars with autonomous driving, and of course the media. These are all, as you as you know, these are hot markets with large TAMs. And a company like Apple, probably the only company in the world, is involved in all these areas. Of course, the EV is not here yet, but there are lots of rumors, roughly 1,200 people employed. Uh, and we've written about that extensively as well, that this could be a $50 billion revenue opportunity. But But literally, this is the only company in the world that's tackling all these hard to get into areas and has a presence in most of these areas outside of EVs at this point in time. So I still think the future, tactically aside with the, with the issues we're going with the economy, the future for Apple is extremely bright given you know, what it controls, which is the entry into the iPhone and all the content that it can control and the areas that the company is targeting. Yeah, but that's a lot that they, I mean, and, you know, the car thing we've heard about for years. I mean, tell, tell me, and I think what Steve's saying about this hardware bundle could be extremely attractive, but again, builds on the success of an existing product. What about the goggles? I mean, could that be the next major hardware platform, the next really new category for Apple? It, it definitely could be a new category for Apple. Look, AR, VR is going to be a, a pretty exciting area. And, you know, as you know, Meta is making a pretty big, uh, a pretty big uh, a place uh, for itself with the, with the Meta, Meta goggles, the Oculus goggles that it has. But I think in that category, Apple would be a me too. Um, I think what was said earlier, that roughly 50% of Apple's revenues still come from the handset. Uh, services are now about 80 billion of revenues. 
but if you think about some of these some of these markets, fintech payments, healthcare, where Apple's sort of a stealth player, they're not really there. You don't see them, but they have this huge presence through the iWatch, where it monitors a bunch of stuff which could be used later on to help you out. I think those could be really exciting areas as well. We 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 don't see perhaps the goggle as being a game changer, um, but we see a lot of these other areas and a lot of these other end markets as being a game changer. That's very a little harsh on the uh, the goggles uh, there, but I, I, I take your <laughs> I take your point though that you know this is going to be a competitive category, but so are the others. Is there a risk that they have are just trying to do too much? No, I look. I think Apple's uh, Apple's already into a lot of areas. It's a large organization, but you have to think about how they play into areas. You know, they control the entry into the into the iPhone. Uh, for example, I'll cite IDFA, which is you know their ability last year, as you saw, to be able to cut out people like Meta and others just simply from from giving you random ad, um, you know advertising on their phones. Right. Apple controls that media. They own the device and they control the entry to it. With that, they also have the ability to show you things that they want to sell to you. Uh, they haven't done that in a meaningful way, but, but of course they can if they wanted to. And if you think about it, uh, you know, Apple is probably the only company that I can think of which is proficient in both hardware and software. True. So there's a lot of good software companies, Google, Microsoft, um, a lot of good hardware companies, Samsung, LG, Sony. Right. But nobody, nobody threads that gap together like, quite like these guys yeah. do and all in a controlled environment. So that's the beauty about Apple. It's amazing. Maybe Tesla. Maybe Tesla could do both. But to take your point, this way in a much bigger, more significant way, Apple. Harsh, thanks for all your thoughts today. It's been fun. Thank Harsh you. Kumar with Piper Sandler. Still ahead, chip stocks hit today, hit this month, hit this year, and the sector is starting to show signs of deflation. It's not just supply chain issues resolving. We'll explain why this could turn out to help them maybe in the back half after this quick break. Welcome back. The semiconductor ETF, the SMH, is down about 16% for the month of June as it continues to take a beating. But that's not the only thing going lower for some of the chips. Christina Partzinevelis has the details for us. Christina? It's prices, specifically prices for graphic processing units and memory chips. The chip sector as a whole is known to be cyclical. So when consumer growth stalls, many chip makers get hit. So names like Marvell, for example, and NVIDIA losing almost half of their stock value this year alone. And with slower demand for consumer electronics, that brings higher DRAM inventories. Those are the chips that store memory and are used in electronics. One research firm predicts memory prices could actually fall anywhere between 3 and 8% in the third quarter. And that's accounting for inflation. And when you have uh, memory chips uh, prices that fall, it could hit Micron because they make memory chips. Their earnings are out tomorrow after the bell. And Wall Street has been pretty downbeat on the company thus far. And it's not just about memory chips. You also got GPUs. Graphic processing unit prices are have been falling, and that could affect companies like NVIDIA and AMD. The reason why we're seeing the decline is because of mining as well as gamers. And it's having a full effect on the SOX ETF as well as the SMH. And I focus on just the SOX ETF for a second. P, multiple compression, has decreased about 42% recently, the worst in the last decade, and well below the 26% historical average. So SOX short interest right now is low, but it's still at a one-year high. The big question, big picture now, is the industry on course for an inventory course correction during the second half of this year? You've got rising inventory levels, slower demand, and a weakening economic backdrop, which make for a compelling case. And another sign, perhaps, of disinflation more broadly. Christina, thank you very much, Thanks. Christina Partzinevelis. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.